Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for returning for part two of A Dynasty Crumbles. If you haven't watched part one, go ahead and watch it because you might be a little confused. This is a continuation of the Murdoch family murders. Now, part one, we covered everything that happened prior to Alec Murdoch's trial that began on January 24th, 2003. And boy, it was a lot. That family was very corrupt and things have pretty much come to rest with the exception of Alec's financial crimes. He has still not had his day in court for those, but don't worry it's coming, as well as the deaths of Stephen Smith and Gloria Satterfield. So let's just get right into the trial. This whole episode is going to be all about Alec Murdoch's trial. Please be sure to check out the episode description. There you will find the timestamps for this episode, as well as a support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. You can also find the links to my TikTok and Instagram. So go ahead and follow me where I will be posting videos of a lot of what happened in this case, There's a lot of body cam footage and I will have all of that on my TikTok and just be posting it throughout the weekend. So let's get right into the trial. So as I said, it began on January 24th, 2023 at the Colleton County Courthouse. Now this case was huge. This prominent family, this prominent community man, Alec Murdoch, big time lawyer, he's about to be exposed. He's going on trial for the murder of his wife and son. So this was very captivating for people. There were TV reporters everywhere. The trial was being live streamed. It was a big deal. Now, side note, during the third week of the trial, there was actually a bomb threat and the courtroom had to be evacuated. Just another crazy element to this trial. Not sure who conducted that bomb threat, whether or not it was somebody that knew the Murdoch family. I don't know, but that would be interesting to find out. By this point, Alec had been in prison for more than a year. As I said in the last episode, he was denied bond and then he was given a $7 million bond that he wasn't able to pay. So he had to stay in jail until his trial. I just think it's so ironic that generations of Murdoch men and lawyers had been in the courtroom that Alec was now a defendant in. And the judge even had a portrait of the Murdoch family lawyers removed from the courtroom before the trial started, which in my opinion was a good call, but it's just so ironic. I'm sure that they never thought that that would happen. Now, this was gonna be a hard case for the prosecution to prove, mainly because the evidence was mostly circumstantial. There wasn't a lot of direct evidence tying Alec to the crime, such as DNA or even an eyewitness account. They were really going on cell phone data, timing, accounts from people that knew Alec, So there wasn't a lot of hard evidence, but there was definitely enough to convict him. And we will go over all of it. So the pretrial motions began, which occurs before the trial to determine what evidence can be included in it. And prosecution asked Judge Clifton Newman for permission to provide testimony about Alec's past financial crimes. They felt that the cover up of his financial misconduct was the main motive in him killing Paul and Maggie. Now, normally this wouldn't have been allowed because this isn't a financial case. This is a murder case. And the jury was supposed to be focusing on the charges that he was being accused of at the time, which was murder. And the defense team was very against this. They felt like Alec's financial crimes weren't related to the murders at all. But ultimately the judge sided with the prosecution. He felt that both of these were very closely related. He definitely felt like Alec's financial crimes were essential in explaining a potential motive as to why he killed his wife and son. Firearm ballistics expert Paul Greer also testified during the pretrial motions to see if he could use his testimony during the trial. He argued that the shell casings found near Maggie's body matched the shell casings found 
found on the Moselle property, which concluded that Maggie was killed by a gun owned by the family. Now, as I said, I'm gonna go into this a little bit more later, but Moselle was a hunting property. It was very remote in the low country of South Carolina. The Murdoch's were known to hunt. They owned 27 guns. They had a gun room. If ballistics expert Paul Greer could determine that the same bullets used to kill Maggie were the same bullets found all over the Murdoch hunting property, then it was safe to assume that she was killed by a family gun. And Judge Newman ruled in his favor and allowed his testimony in court because he believed that this was a very crucial piece of evidence. Now, the defense really wanted to block the testimony from Tom Bevel, who was a blood spatter expert, as well as any evidence related to what he found. They argued that Tom could not conclude that high velocity blood splatter was found on Alex's shirt, which was the white t-shirt he was wearing when the police arrived to his house. If you recall in that now infamous, highly scrutinized body cam footage. Now, high velocity blood spatter on a shooter's clothing indicates that they shot someone at close range. And the defense felt that Tom didn't find any blood splatter on his own during his initial investigation and that he only said he did after being influenced by sled investigators to change his conclusion. The following day, opening statements began and lead prosecutor Creighton Waters gave his opening statement. And I'm gonna play some of that for you here. On the evening of June 7th, 2021, at the defendant's property off Moselle Road in Collinson County. His son, Paul Murdoch, was standing in a small feed room in some kennels they had on the property. About 8.50 p.m., and the defendant over there, Alec Murdoch, took a 12-stage shotgun and shot him in the shoulder, in the chest and the shoulder, with buckshot. And the evidence is going to show it was a million to one shot. He could have survived that. But after that, another shot went up under his head and did catastrophic damage to his brain and his head. The evidence is going to show that Paul collapsed right outside that feed room. And just moments later, just moments later, he picked up a 300 blackout which is a type of ammunition, but an AR-style rifle. And the evidence is going to show that the family had multiple weapons throughout the property, picked up that 300 blackout rifle, and opened fire on his wife, Maggie, just feet away near some sheds that used to be a hangar. Pow, pow. Two shots, abdomen in the leg, and took her down. And after that, there were additional shots, including two shots to the head, Again, did catastrophic damage and killed her instantly. The prosecution believed that Alex's motive for killing Paul and Maggie was to distract from his issues that were piling up. There was his addiction, his financial crimes that he had been confronted about multiple times, the second time being the day Paul and Maggie were killed, as well as the Mallory Beach wrongful death suit, where he was going to have to turn over his financial records. They believed that he wanted to buy himself time to cover up his financial crimes and cared much more about his family's image and legacy than preserving the lives of two people that he was supposed to protect. Creighton Waters also alluded to some very shocking, never before heard evidence. He told the courtroom that there was a video proving that Alec was with Maggie and Paul minutes before they were killed. Now, this was not what people believed because Alec told everyone he was at his mother's. He woke up from his nap and went straight to his mom's house. The prosecution saying they have proof that that's not true. The prosecution also revealed that Alec's hands and seatbelt 
both tested positive for gunshot residue. The defense then gave their opening statement and lead defense attorney Dick Harputlian decided to address the court. And I'm gonna play some of that audio for you as well. It is our honor to represent Alec Murdoch. I say it's our honor because I submit to you what you have heard from the attorney general as facts are not, are not. They're his theories, his conjectures. Now stand up. This is Alec Murdoch. And Alec was the loving father of Paul and the loving husband of Maggie. You're not going to hear a single witness say that their relationship, Maggie and Alex's relationship, were anything other than loving. You're going to hear about their relationship. You're going to see texts and emails indicating a loving relationship. Paul, the apple of his eye. You're going to see a video somewhere between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, the night of the murders with Paul and Alec riding around looking at some trees they planted. So to find Alec Murdoch guilty of murdering his son, you're going to have to accept that within an hour of having a extraordinarily bonding, you can see it in the Snapchat, that he executes him in a brutal fashion. Not believable. The defense also argued that there was no way Alec would have had time to clean himself up and go to his mother's house in the time that the murders occurred. Dick Harputlian really wanted to drive home the point that Alec was a loving father who would never do this to his family. And he references the Snapchat video of him that Paul posted on his story just hours before the murders occurred. And he uses this to corroborate the fact that they had a great relationship and a great bond and that there's no way Alec would have done something like this to his son. The defense also posed the theory that there were two shooters and what drew them to this conclusion was the fact that there were two different guns used. So the first testimonies begin and the prosecution called their first witness to the stand, Sergeant Daniel Green. Now he was the first officer that responded to the scene the night of June 7th, 2021. And it was his body cam that captured that very highly publicized footage of Alec when he arrived. This was played in the courtroom for the jury to see in order to kind of assess Alec's behavior and see what he was acting like. Sergeant Green felt like Alec was being pretty performative and he felt like he was immediately trying to explain why Paul and Maggie were killed. Now remember in the first episode, I played some of that footage and Alec brought up the boat crash that killed Mallory and the threats that Paul had been receiving because of her death. He went right into this, didn't waste any time going into why he thought Paul and Maggie were killed. And of course he made sure he was nowhere in that explanation. Sergeant Green also testified about three tire track impressions that he found at the crime scene. Two were found to be from Alec's truck, but one was never identified. There were also footprints found, but investigators couldn't determine whose footprints they were because they hadn't preserved the crime scene very well. And we'll get into that a little bit more later because the defense goes in on SLED about this. They definitely feel like SLED did not secure the crime scene the way they should have, which caused some of the destruction of potential evidence that could have been used to exonerate and could have posed a theory that there were other suspects involved. 
Captain Jason Chapman also testified for the prosecution and he was one of the first officers on the scene as well. Now, remember when Alex said that he was trying to take Paul and Maggie's pulses once he found their bodies. And Captain Chapman said that based on the amount of blood at the crime scene, there was no way Alec would have been able to check their pulses without getting blood on him. But when officers arrived, he was wearing a clean white t-shirt and he had on khaki shorts and there was no blood on him at all. All. As the trial continued during that first week, the jury saw Alex's first video interview in the car the night of the murders. And lead detective Laura Rutland was in the car during the interview and she was in the back seat sitting next to Alex's lawyer. And she testified that upon initial glance and, you know, looking at Alec, his hands, shirt, and shorts were clean. She said that if anything, he looked like he had just changed his clothes. SLED agent Melinda Worley also took the stand and testified about the shell casings that were found at the scene that ballistics expert Paul Greer had brought up in the pretrial motions. And they found that 300 blackout casings were found near Maggie's body, as well as 12 gauge shotgun shells that were found near Paul's body, indicating that these were the guns that were used to kill them. Agent Worley also collected 10 swabs of DNA from Alex's truck that tested positive for blood. Well, they tested presumptive positive, which means that it was very possible that blood was in fact present in Alex's truck at the time. There was also blood found on the steering wheel, but investigators weren't able to determine how long it had been there. Special Agent Jeff Croft also testified for the state and he said that he heard Alex say, I did him so bad during an interview that he gave three days after the murders on June 10th, 2021. And this was played in court for him to once again confirm that he did in fact hear Alex say, I did him so bad instead of they did him so bad when referring to Paul's murder. And I'm gonna play the audio for you guys and I want you to let me know in the ratings and the comments what you think you're hearing. It's just so bad, I did it so bad. And Agent Jeff Croft still confirmed that he heard I did him so bad instead of they did him so bad. I'm gonna play it one more time at a slower speed, just like they did in the courtroom. And again, I want you guys to pay attention and see what you hear. It's just so So that was Alex saying it slowed down and Special Agent Croft still confirmed that he heard him say, I did him so bad, as opposed to they did him so bad. The prosecution argued that this was a confession from Alec and that he maybe slipped up a little bit by accident. As I said, let me know what you guys think. Agent Croft also said that he found the Moselle property had a lot of 300 blackout shell casings on it, which were the bullets that matched the gun that killed Maggie. So it was very possible that Maggie was in fact killed by a family gun. And this was a big point that the prosecution wanted to drive home, mainly because if they could determine that Maggie and Paul were in fact killed by family guns, that it was only a family member that could have done this. And there was only one family member on the property at the time. Who goes to someone's house to commit a murder and doesn't bring their own weapons? Why would you use a weapon inside the home not knowing that they had them? And it's very possible that somebody could have known that they had them, but there wasn't a lot of third-party DNA evidence. Next, Lieutenant Britt Dove testified and he went over minute-by-minute -minute cell phone data. He came with 
all the receipts. He had a lot of cell phone data that came from Paul, Maggie, and Alex's phones the day of the murders to really paint a picture and a timeline of what happened. Lieutenant Dove found that Paul posted a video to his Snapchat around 7.30 p.m. and I guess it lagged because it didn't post until about 15 to 20 minutes later. And it showed Alex trying to knock down a small tree. In this video, he was wearing a blue button-up shirt and khaki pants. Now this was the interaction in the Snapchat video that Dick Harputlian was referencing in his opening statement. In this video, as I said, Alec was wearing a blue button-up shirt and khaki pants, which didn't match the clothes he wore the night Paul and Maggie were killed because this isn't what he was wearing in the body cam footage. This also wasn't what he was wearing when he went to work that morning. So he changed twice in one day. Now we'll come back to this a little bit later, but I want you to keep that in mind. Paul and Maggie's phones placed them at the dog kennels at Moselle at 8.38 p.m. At 8.49 p.m., both Paul and Maggie received a text from different people. Maggie received a text from her sister-in-law and Paul received a text from his friend, Rogan Gibson. Maggie read her text, but Paul didn't. And the prosecution theorized that Paul and Maggie were killed between 8.49 p.m. and 9.06 p.m. So prosecution decided to call Rogan Gibson to the stand because he was the last person Paul spoke with before he died. And his testimony was very, very important. The night that Paul and Maggie were killed, Rogan and Paul were on FaceTime for a little bit. The reason why they were on FaceTime was because Rogan's dog, Cash, was actually staying at the dog kennels at Moselle because he had an injured tail. And Rogan wanted to check on him and he wanted to see him. So him and Paul decide to FaceTime. But the service was very bad down by the kennels. You know, this is the low country of South Carolina. They don't have good cell phone service. So Rogan asked Paul for a video of Cash instead. And he texted him at 8.49 p.m. asking for this video. But Paul never responded. And Rogan was a bit confused. So he decided to call him and he called him five times. He even texted Maggie at 9.34 p.m. asking her if she could have Paul call him. So the reason why Rogan's testimony is so important because it determines whether or not Paul was killed at the specific time that the prosecution said. Rogan and Paul were in the middle of a conversation. Paul's phone was found to be on 2% according to cell phone data. And the only way that Paul would have been able to send the video of Cash is if he was still down by the dog kennels. If he didn't answer the phone because he was on 2%, then he would have had to go all the way back up to the house, charge his phone, and then come all the way back down, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Paul would have responded to his friend while he was at the dog kennels because the video that his friend was requesting could only be sent from the dog kennels. Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down here? And the defense wanted to argue that Paul didn't respond to this text because his phone battery was low. And the defense wanted to prove that Paul and Maggie were killed later than the window that the prosecution suggested between 8.49 and 9.06. They wanted to compensate for the lie that Alec told. So remember when Alec said he didn't go to the dog kennels with Paul and Maggie that night? He said he fell asleep on the couch, went to visit his mom as soon as he woke up, and he woke up a little after 9 p.m.? Well... Police recovered a video from Paul's phone that was recorded at the dog kennels at 8.44 p.m. Now this was minutes before Paul and Maggie were said to be killed. And as lead prosecutor Creighton Waters mentioned in the opening statements, this was the video evidence that proved that Alec lied about ever going down to the dog kennels. So in the video, you can't see anybody. It's just Rogan's dog, Cash, but 
you can hear the voices of Paul, Maggie, and Alec Murdoch. Now, I'm gonna play this for you, and then I'll explain a little bit of what's going on afterwards. Get back. So in this video, what's happening is that one of the Murdoch's dogs named Bubba, who isn't seen in the video, had a chicken in his mouth. And Maggie says, hey, Bubba has a chicken in his mouth. And Alex saying, come here, Bubba, come here, Bubba, trying to get the chicken out of his mouth. And this video was played in court and everybody who testified identified these three voices belonging to Paul Maggie and Alec. And Rogan Gibson was one of the people that 100% confirmed that Alec's voice was heard in the background. Now, when Rogan gave an interview to SLED during the initial investigation, he said that he believed he heard Alec's voice in the background while he was on FaceTime with Paul. And this was before anybody even knew about the Snapchat video. But yet Rogan was saying, uh, I think I heard him in the background on the phone as well. So this just completely disproved Alec's alibi about being asleep in the house and never going outside. So it makes you wonder, why did you lie? But we'll get into that a little bit later. So this is why the defense really wanted to push back the time of death so Alec wasn't placed at the crime scene right before Paul and Maggie were killed because this video was taken at 8.44 and Paul and Maggie were said to be killed around 8.49 p.m. But of course the defense was trying to say, oh, he stopped responding because his phone battery was low. I don't think Paul could have charged his phone at the kennels. So it would have made more sense for him to take the video and send it really quick before his phone died. The prosecution decided to call Maggie's sister, Marion Proctor, to testify. And she said that after Paul and Maggie were killed, she was worried that Alec and Buster would be targeted by the killer next. But Alec didn't seem to be very afraid at all. Now recall that he was the one who posed the theory that the family was being targeted because of the boat crash. So why weren't you scared? Marion said that he really only seemed concerned about clearing Paul's name in the boat crash. We already know Paul was responsible for the boat crash. So I don't understand why Alec would have been trying to clear his name. We already know that he's the one who did it. Everybody in the boat testified that Paul was the one who was driving. So why was this your concern? Not to mention Paul is now deceased. So he can no longer face the charges for the crime of killing Mallory. But I guess Alec was trying to exonerate him and maintain his legacy now that he is gone. Marion also told the jury that Alec asked Maggie to come to the Moselle property to talk to him. Now at the time, Maggie was staying at the family property on Edisto Beach and he was upset because his father was dying from an illness. But she said she spoke to Maggie while she was on her way to Moselle after being summoned by Alec and told, hey, I need you to come over. And she had encouraged her sister to go and be with her husband by his side during his time of need. But this was the last time the two sisters ever spoke. Okay, here's why this testimony is important. Now recall in part one of the series, 
Alec tried to call Maggie between 9.02 p.m. and 9.06 p.m. to see if she wanted to go with him to go to his mother Libby's house. Then he texted her at 9.08 to let her know that he was going anyway because Maggie never answered and that he would just be right back. So he said, I'm just gonna go ahead and go. I'll be on the way back soon. But wasn't Maggie's whole reason for being at Moselle accompany Alec to his mother's house in the first place to support him because his father was sick? But yet you just went by yourself anyway after attempting to call her maybe two or three times. It doesn't make any sense. If you wanted her to go bad enough for you to ask her to come over, why not just go down to the kennels and say, hey, I'm getting ready to go. You wanna come with me? Why just leave without even seeing her before you left? You know, she didn't answer the phone, just drive down and see her. It's that simple. It's literally on the property. He would have had to pass the dog kennels on his way out of Moselle anyway. So why not just stop? You just drove right past her after she didn't answer. Doesn't make any sense. Now, there were rumors that Alec and Maggie were having marital issues at the time, and it was reported that Maggie had seen a divorce attorney weeks before she was murdered. This hasn't been confirmed. However, I do believe it, and here's why. When Maggie's sister Marion was giving her testimony how Maggie was staying on a completely different property and that she actually encouraged her sister to go be with her husband, why did you need encouraging? Did you not want to go see him? And why were you staying at another property in the first place? They said that Maggie wasn't spending a lot of time at Moselle. Why weren't they not living together? They had three properties. Why were they not staying on the same property at the same time? Definitely makes it seem like there was something going on between them, some sort of strife, some sort of issue. But people argue that the reason why Maggie was summoned to Moselle by Alec in the first place was so he could kill her. I mean, clearly he didn't care if she came with him to his mother's house or not because he left without her after only calling her once. Marion actually testified later on in the trial, but her testimony was pretty important with the cell phone data. So I decided to include her earlier on in the episode because it's very important to note. So remember ballistics expert, Paul Greer, who took the stand during the pre-trial motions in order to have his testimony included in the trial? Well, because he was granted permission by Judge Clifton Newman, he is now back. And he, again, was able to conclude that the 300 blackout casings found at the crime scene were the same ones found on the Moselle property from hunting. And this proves that Maggie was killed by a family gun, which was a huge point that the prosecution wanted to drive home because this pretty much confirms that you either knew that the Murdochs had a lot of guns as well as where to find them, or you were in fact a Murdoch. The prosecution decided to call Alec's mother's caregiver to the stand and her name was Michelle or Shelly Smith. Now in the first episode, I mentioned that Alec's mother had late stage Alzheimer's, so she needed a caregiver to help watch her. And Michelle was at his mother's home when Alec arrived around 9.20 p.m. And she testified that this was not the normal time that Alec would normally come over. It was a little late for him. She also said that Alec seemed very fidgety and just a little restless. Now, when he arrived, his mother was actually asleep so Michelle said he decided to go upstairs and talk to her while she slept. And he stayed for about 15 minutes and left. Michelle then said that Alec came back to the home the following week and coached her on what to say if she was questioned by police. Michelle said he told her to say that he was there for 30 to 40 minutes, even though he was only there for about 15 to 20. Now, if Alec's mother was asleep when he arrived, why would he have had to stay for 30 to 40 minutes? Michelle also said that Alec offered to get her a better job in the school system 
and pay for her wedding. So kind of sounds like he was trying to sway her into testifying in a way that made him sound better. And he was trying to offer her incentives to do this, which kind of sounds like witness tampering, if you ask me. Michelle then said that Alec came back to his mother's house a few days later on June 16th, 2021. And he came around six o'clock in the morning, which is really early. Michelle said that when he walked in, he was holding a blue tarp in his hand and took it upstairs. Investigators searched his mother's house and they found a blue windbreaker jacket that was balled up in the closet. Now, Michelle wasn't able to determine whether or not he was holding a blue windbreaker jacket or a blue tarp, but investigators found a blue windbreaker jacket. And trace evidence analyst, agent Megan Fletcher, decided to examine the jacket that was found in the home for gunshot residue. And she found found a lot of it. And this concluded that whoever was wearing that jacket had just recently fired a gun. But again, Michelle wasn't able to conclude whether or not Alec was holding a tarp or this blue windbreaker jacket. Not to mention, Alec lived on a hunting property. The family hunted very often. They couldn't really conclude that this gunshot residue came from him killing Paul and Maggie or whether or not it came from him hunting. But I don't know who wears blue windbreaker jackets when they go hunting. Don't you wear camouflage? You don't wear bright blue colors, but I don't hunt, but I am from the country. So that's what I always assumed. So now we're going to start getting into more of Alec's financial crimes, which is said to be, according to the prosecution, his biggest motive for killing Paul and Maggie. So prosecution decides to call Jeannie Seconder to the stand, and she is the chief financial officer of the Murdoch family law firm otherwise known as PMPED. Jeannie said in court that Alec was so successful simply because he was a bullshit artist and he was very good at fooling people. He had the gift of gab. She said that in May of 2021, she discovered Chris Wilson's missing check. Now recall from part one that Chris Wilson was Alec's best friend and he had him write a check to him directly instead of to the law firm. But Alec ended up returning this check back to Chris, but $100,000 of it were missing and he never got that money back. Jeannie Seconder, she noticed this discrepancy in the books. And as she went digging, she discovered that even more money was missing. $792,000 were unaccounted for. So she decided to confront Alec in May of 2021 after finding out about this huge discrepancy. And she questioned him again just a month later on June 7th, 2021. And this was the day that Paul and Maggie were killed, which the prosecution believes was no coincidence. So Jeannie decides to retell the story of her confronting Alec on the day of June 7th, 2021. And this was a very crucial testimony because this is said to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Alec saw that the walls were closing in on him. He was questioned for another time and Jeannie was not letting up. She's like, we need to know what happened to this money. So this was said to be his final straw that caused him to kill Paul and Maggie. Jeannie said that she went to go speak to Alec and he gave her a dirty look and said, what do you need now? And she said that he never acted like that towards her. She had never seen him like that. Jeannie told him that she believed he was pocketing money that was meant for his clients. But before she could ask more information, his phone rang, telling him that his father was in the hospital and likely going to die soon. And Jeannie immediately felt sympathy for him. She decided to stop asking him questions about the money and their conversation turned pretty personal at that point. The law firm decided to pause the investigation to give Alec time to process the news of his father 
Jeannie decided not to question Alec any more about the money because she saw that he was going through a lot. Now, this didn't mean it was over, but for now, she was going to put it aside. And the prosecution believed that Alec saw how his father's looming death diverted attention away from his crimes being exposed. Jeannie immediately stopped asking him questions about the money as soon as he got this phone call. Prosecution believes that this was a light bulb that went off in his head. And he said, well, if she's gonna stop asking me questions because my father is dying, maybe she'll stop asking me questions if I take this a step further. And they believe that this was his motive for killing his wife and son. Who would question someone about missing money when they just lost half their family? Mark Tinsley, the family attorney for Mallory Beach's family who filed the wrongful death suit against Alec, also testified for the prosecution and he alluded to the same thing. He said that once Paul and Maggie were killed, the lawsuit pretty much ended after that. It was effectively over because the sympathy that people felt toward Alec would have gotten him off the hook no matter what he did. And he wouldn't have had to turn over his financial records, exposing his years of fraud and corruption. The prosecution then decided to call Chris Wilson to the stand. As I said, this was Alec's best friend of 30 years that he stole from. So Chris decides to retell this story. He says that Alec got him to personally write a check of over $700,000 to him him instead of directly to the law firm, which is where it was supposed to go. But when Alex sent the money back, about $100,000 were missing. And remember, when I said in part one, Alec confessed to Chris that he was addicted to opioids and his addiction was getting pretty bad. But Chris said that he had no idea Alec was addicted to opioids. Mind you, this was his best friend of over 30 years and he said he had no clue that he had a drug problem. And the prosecution argued that if Alec could hide this bad drug addiction, he could probably hide being a killer and give the appearance that he was this family man that would never do that. The people that were closest to him had no clue that he was on drugs. Now the people in his immediate, immediate family knew, Paul knew, Maggie knew, Buster said he knew a little bit, but not as much as Paul and Maggie. He also admitted that he stopped asking Alec questions about the missing $100,000 after Paul and Maggie died, which was just another example of Alec being given a temporary pass for his deceit because of the sympathy that people had for him. Alex saw how well this worked for him. Then the Murdoch housekeeper, a woman named Blanca, decided to take the stand and testify. Jumping back to an Alec changed his clothes twice the day of the murders. I said I was gonna revisit this. The clothes he was wearing in Paul's Snapchat video were different than the ones that he wore to work that morning and the ones he wore when police arrived after Paul and Maggie were killed. And Blanca testified that before Alec left for work, he was wearing a bright seafoam green polo shirt, which is not at all the clothes he was wearing in Paul's Snapchat video. Now this is pretty crazy. Blanca also testified that the shirt that Alec wore in the Snapchat video, as well as two other pairs of shoes that he wore very often, were never seen again. She never saw these articles of clothing again, and he wore them pretty frequently. According to Blanca, Alec also tried to do the same thing to her, where he was trying to get her to change her story and recount things differently than how they happened. He tried to tell Blanca he was wearing a different colored shirt that day, and he was trying to get her to change her story and act like things happened pretty differently or may not have taken as long as they really did. The prosecution then called Dr. Eileen Reimer to the stand and she conducted the autopsies of Paul and Maggie. Now, as I said in part one, and as Creighton Waters said in his opening statements, Paul was shot twice, once in the chest and once in the head. And Maggie was shot five times in the thigh, chest, wrist, left breast, 
and head. Maggie's shot that went through the left breast actually came out and struck her in the side of her face. So this was a very brutal killing. Now the defense tried to pose the theory that Paul could have shot his mother and then himself, but Dr. Reimer shut this down immediately. First of all, the angle at which they were both shot, there's no way Paul could have done that. And second of all, if Paul had done it, where did the gun go? If you commit a murder-suicide, the weapon would still be at the crime scene. You can't hide it or get rid of it after you have already killed yourself. So that didn't make any sense at all. I don't even know why they posed that theory. Leeds led investigator, Agent Daniel Owen testified. He was the agent who questioned Alec during the investigation as detailed in part one. And he was the one who pretty much questioned Alec multiple times. His testimony is crucial because he was able to compare each interview that Alec gave and point out any inconsistencies in them. When I mentioned in part one, Alec had said that he heard a car. He was certain that he heard a car pull up to Moselle before he left to go to his mother's house, but that he just assumed it was Maggie. But Maggie never walked in the house before you left and you never saw her on your way out. So how could she have pulled up to the house close enough for you to hear, but never see? Agent Owen just said there were a lot of inconsistencies in his stories, and this was definitely one of them. He did not mention this in the initial interview, but he said in the second interview, he was certain that he heard a car pull up. But if you were certain, why didn't you mention that in the first place? Why did it take you three days to remember this? And sometimes it can take you a couple days to remember something. Maybe your mind is clouded, but I don't know. I'm not really buying it. The prosecution called their last witness to the stand. And this was SLED investigator, Special Agent Peter Radovsky. And he provided more cell phone tower data evidence to build a timeline of the night of the murders. Now, Paul and Maggie's phones stopped all activity at 8.49 p.m., which is said to be when they were killed. Alex's phone started showing activity from 9.02 to 9.06, which is within the window that Paul and Maggie were said to have been killed. Now, Alex's phone had been inactive for an hour before becoming reactivated within this time window. And he took 283 steps within this four-minute window, which is said to be the amount of steps that one would take on the way to the dog kennels or on the way back from the dog kennels. At 9.07 p.m., Alec was in his car leaving Moselle when he was going to his mother's house. But as he was leaving the property, the cell phone data showed that he drove past where Maggie's phone was last active and his speed accelerated to 42 miles per hour as he was passing Maggie's phone. Now that's pretty fast to be driving in your own driveway or on your own property and not on the road. If you're driving on your own property, I don't feel like you have to be going that fast. 42 miles per hour is like how fast you would drive on the road, not on your secluded property. And the prosecution argued that Alec may have tossed Maggie's phone out of the window at this time. First of all, her phone was not initially found at the scene by police. It wasn't found until the following day when investigators came back to do more crime scene processing. And it was found by John Marvin, who was Alec's brother. And he used the find my iPhone feature. Maggie's phone was found at the spot that Alec was said to have accelerated his speed just the night before. The data also showed that Alec called 911 just 20 seconds after he arrived at Moselle. But there's no way that he would had time to go to the house, drive back to the dog kennels, and check Paul and Maggie's pulses. Alec also called numerous people on the way to his mother's house. As I mentioned in part one, he called his brother John, his son Buster, 
and his best friend, Chris. Now, Buster didn't live at Moselle. He lived with his girlfriend, Brooklyn, and they had another house that was nearby. And the prosecution believed that Alec was calling all these people to try and create an alibi for himself because he wanted as many people as possible to know that he was going to his mother's house. So that way, if they were asked where Alec was that night, that's what they would say. Now, Alec's a lawyer. He knows how this goes. He knows that people are gonna be asked about where he was or, oh, did you speak to anybody? I mean, I don't know how often he talks to these people, but why are you calling these three people at nine o'clock at night? Like, what do you want? Again, I don't know if this was normal for them or not, but if it wasn't, it's pretty interesting. Alex's phone showed him arriving at his mother's house at 9.22 p.m. And he had been driving at about 75 miles per hour. When he left her house at 9.43 p.m., he was going 80 miles per hour. When he arrived back at Moselle near the dog kennels at 10.05 p.m., this is when the 911 call was said to be placed. So it sounds like he was in a hurry to get back to Moselle for whatever reason. The investigators also found that at least four calls were manually deleted from Alex's phone log. And these calls were said to have been placed to Paul and Maggie. These calls were accounted for in Paul and Maggie's phones, but not in Alex's phone. So why did you delete them? After this testimony, the prosecution rested. The defense continued with their testimonies and they wanted to call Alec's family and friends to the stand because they wanted to paint this picture that Alec was a grieving father and husband and that there's no way that he could have committed these crimes. So Buster Murdoch took the stand first and he was Alec's only surviving son. He went back and told the story of the moment he found out that his mother and brother were murdered. And I'm gonna play that audio for you here. Buster, when did you first find out that your mom and brother were murdered? My, um, my dad called me. I can't, I can't remember the exact time, but it was later. Um, and he called me on the phone. He asked me if I was sitting down and I was like, yeah. And then he, you know, sounded odd. And then he, then he told me that, that my mom and, and brother had been shot. Now, Buster said when he first saw Alec, he was behaving very upset and he just completely broke down. He was crying and absolutely distraught. Buster went over to Moselle the night of the murders after he found out that Paul and Maggie had been killed. Earlier in the night, recall that Alec and Buster spoke on the phone while Alec was on the way to his mother's house. And Buster said that his father seemed very normal and that he didn't suspect anything at all. He said he wasn't acting out of character, but of course, if Alec is trying to build an alibi, wanting to make it seem like he's as normal as possible, I'm sure he's gonna act like nothing happened. I mean, we see that he's pretty good at hiding things when his closest friends had no idea that he was addicted to opioids for 20 years. That brings me to my next point, that Buster was asked about his father's drug problem. And as I said earlier, he said that he knew that his father had a drug problem, but that Paul and Maggie knew much more about it than he did. Buster was also asked about his father changing his clothes twice in one day, which Buster said was pretty normal. He said it was normal for his father to change and even shower multiple times a day if he had been outside on the property sweating. Alex's brother, John Marvin, testified, and he gave a very emotional testimony claiming that Alex Alec was also very, very upset after the murders. Now, as I said in part one, Alec was said to have been very upset. He even stopped eating. I mean, he could have been stressed 
living with what he did, but there's really no way of knowing why he was acting like that. I mean, maybe it could have been all performative to make it seem like he was grieving. The defense then decided to revisit their theory that they posed in the opening arguments about there being two shooters because two different guns were used to kill Paul and Maggie. They testified that based on where the bullet holes were in respect to the ground, it was possible that there were two shooters involved in the killings of Paul and Maggie. The defense decides to call forensic engineer Mike Sutton to the stand, and he used a diagram that reconstructed the whole crime scene. He showed the angles at which Paul and Maggie were shot and concluded that the trajectory of the bullets were consistent with two shooters. It says that the shooters were said to have been between 5'2 and 5'4, and Alec is 6'4. So the defense argued that Alec was too tall to have shot Paul and Maggie, given how low the angle was at which they were shot. But the prosecution kind of debunked this because Mike Sutton really had no training in shooting reconstruction or the use of a firearm. So there really wasn't much that he could base these findings off of. There was no expertise behind it, I think is what the prosecution was trying to argue. Mark Ball, a former law partner of Alec, decided to testify as well. And he was one of the people that was hanging around the crime scene the day after the murders. Now recall in part one, I said how it really wasn't fair that Alec was allowed to just have his friends hanging out with the cops, helping search. Even Alec's lawyer was helping search. I mean, this was not allowed. And, you know, I made the argument about how people with money are allowed to get away with shit like this. But Mark Ball said that there was evidence lying all around the crime scene. There were shell casings. There were even parts of Paul's skull that had not been collected as evidence. And he argued that SLED may have mishandled this evidence and the defense really wanted to make this clear. They believed that officers were walking through the crime scene destroying evidence that could have potentially exonerated Alec and posed the theory that there was an intruder that had come in. The defense called witnesses that testified that the crime scene itself wasn't even checked for fingerprints. Other testimonies revealed that showers and tubs in the Murdoch home were not swabbed for fingerprints or DNA evidence, which couldn't prove whether or not Alec had washed up after the murders. Why Sled didn't collect the clothing that Alec was seen wearing in the Snapchat video or collect these DNA evidence samples can't really be explained. They definitely dropped the ball. They could have had a lot more physical evidence that could have really put the nail in Alec's coffin and maybe made this case a little less circumstantial. But the defense really believed that SLED not securing the crime scene the way they should have was something they did on purpose because they had zeroed in on Alec from day one as the primary suspect. And them not collecting evidence efficiently could have potentially ruled out other suspects. Now, in a bold move, Alec Murdoch decided to take the stand and he claimed that he wanted to testify because he wanted to clear his name. And I honestly think this is just another one of his schemes to make it seem like he's cooperating when he's really just trying to put on the face and make it seem like he's cooperating. As I said, Alec's a lawyer. He knows that it looks good if he testifies because he knows how risky that is to do as a lawyer. So him willingly wanting to do it makes him look like he's not hiding anything. But boy, please, we already know you did it. Defense attorney Jim Griffin decided to bring in guns that were similar to the ones used to kill Paul and Maggie. And he held up each gun and asked Alec if he used them to kill his wife or son, to which Alec tearfully replied with, no, I did not. I didn't shoot my wife or my son any time ever. Then he was finally asked about that dog kennel video that Paul took that it disproved part of Alec's alibi and exposed a lie that he told. And finally, Alec admitted that he was in fact at the dog kennels that night, but he only admitted because 
there was indisputable evidence. Now, when he was asked why he lied, he said that his opioid addiction was getting worse and worse and that he got very paranoid and felt like he was being suspected. So he decided to lie in order to not look guilty, which, wow, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But he said that he didn't trust Sled and he felt like they were out to get him. And once he lied, he just continued to lie. Now listen to what he said when he was asked why he continued to lie. Did you continue lying after that night, did you not? Well, once I lied, I continued to lie, yes, sir. Why? You know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told a lie, and I told my family, I, I had to keep lying. What the hell? You had to keep lying. What are you lying for? If you're not guilty, you literally have no reason to lie. If you were not the one who committed these murders, you would have had no reason to not tell investigators that you were down there. It makes no sense. And he says that his drug addiction and his paranoia caused him to lie, but I don't know. Alec then goes on to give a different account of what happened that day and that night. We're on like his fourth different account of what happened that night. But according to Alec, he drove around the Moselle property with Paul that afternoon. So that part stayed the same, but he kept calling Paul by his nickname, which is Paul Paul. And he kept saying that over and over and over again. And I definitely think this was a defense strategy to make him look like he was this loving father who would never do that. I mean, look, he's still calling his son by his childhood nickname. He really wasn't calling him this during any of the other interviews. But Alex said that after dinner, Maggie asked him to come out to the kennels and her and Paul were already out there. So Alex decided to drive his golf cart down there and said that one of their dogs named Bubba was trying to eat a chicken. So he wrestled the chicken from the dog's mouth. And after this, he said he left the dog kennels and went back to the house. Alec never mentioned these details in any other interview because up to this point, he had lied about being at the kennels in the first place. So if you were not the one who committed these murders, why can you just tell that story? This was the first time he had ever given an account that put him at the dog kennels. And this was only after he couldn't lie about it anymore because there was proof that he was there. Alex said that when he tried to turn Paul over to check for his pulse, that he got blood on his fingertips. But this blood was nowhere on him when police arrived. It wasn't on his clothes. It wasn't on his hands. Did he wash it off? He never mentioned washing it off. So where did it go? Did you even actually check them? Alec denies that he ever tried to bribe his mother's caregiver, Shelly, or his housekeeper, Blanca. But why would they make that up? They're not directly involved in any of the issues that Alec had going on as far as I know. So why would they lie about these things? Alec was also asked about the Mallory Beach wrongful death suit. And he said that he wasn't stressed about it. Of course, he said that because this was said to be one of the reasons of why he killed Paul and Maggie. In this death suit, he was required to turn over his financial records. And a lot of people think he wanted to avoid having to do this. And killing Paul and Maggie was seen as his way out of having to expose himself essentially. But of course he said that he wasn't stressed about the lawsuit, which doesn't make any sense at all. Why wouldn't you be stressed to turn over proof that you've been committing fraud for years? Lead prosecutor Creighton Waters goes on to question Alec after the defense is done, and he continues to call Alec out for his habit of lying and deceiving for years. Now, he reminded him that he'd been stealing millions of dollars from his clients and his law firm for over a decade, which Alec openly admitted to. Prosecution said that 
Alec only admitted to this because he had got caught, not because he felt bad. I mean, there's proof right there. If you really felt that bad, you wouldn't have gone to so many lengths to hide it or do it in the first place. I mean, him creating that forged bank account that I mentioned in part one, the way he did that was just so elaborate. You did not feel bad at all. I mean, he stole from Gloria Satterfield's sons right after she passed away. He had no conscience. Now I'm gonna play some audio of Alec kind of confessing. He tries to make it seem like he's not confessing, but I'm gonna play this audio and I really want you guys to tell me what you think because it sounds very odd. And this was him being questioned about why he left the dog kennels so quickly after being down there. And what'd you do after that? I left. You left? Now, Just did I jumped leave? on the golf cart and left. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. Did I get on the golf cart and leave that second? Probably not. But did I get on the golf cart and leave very quickly after that? I did. Okay, yeah, I think you testified yesterday. I got out of there. I did. Why'd you get out of there so quick, Mr. Murdoch? Because it was chaotic, it was hot, and I was getting ready to do exactly what I didn't want to do. You were getting ready to do what you didn't want to do. That's correct. Yeah. I was getting ready to sweat. I was getting ready to work. I went back to the air conditioner. I was getting ready to do what I didn't want to do. The prosecution presses him and repeats what he says. And he's like, yeah, I was getting ready to sweat. Huh? That was just such a weird way to word that. It almost sounds like he slipped up and then tried to backpedal and make it sound like something else. I just feel like the way he worded it was very odd. I mean, he could have said, I was sweating, it was hot and I wanted to leave. I feel like that's not a way to describe, I was getting ready to do what I didn't want to do. I was getting ready to sweat. I don't know, let me know what you guys think. Then the prosecution presses him about his last conversations with Paul and Maggie. And I'm gonna play a little bit of that for you here. So did you say goodbye according to your new story? Did I say goodbye? Yeah. Did you talk to them at all, or did you just get the chicken, put it on there, jump on there, and no, just take no. off? I wouldn't have just gone off. I mean, I would have said, I'm leaving. Okay. Did I say goodbye or bye? And again, go but, ahead. I mean, there would have been some, you know, there, there would have been some exchange. I'm not staying here. Well, what was that exchange? I mean, you have, you've had such a photographic memory about these new stories. What, 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 what happened here? No, that's not... I can't tell you the exact words. You don't remember your conversation after you put that chicken up. Did y'all talk about the chicken? No, I don't think we did. Did you talk with Paul about Cash's sale? After the chicken? Yeah. No, I, I know I didn't do that. Now, is it just me or is it odd that he can't remember the last conversations that he ever had with his wife and son? You remember everything else that happened up to that point except for that arguably the most heartfelt important part. Now I know a lot of times, sometimes people maybe don't remember the last conversation they had with somebody if it wasn't particularly important. I personally have not lost anybody that was very close to me. So I really don't know, you know, how that works. I can't judge that, but it is very interesting how he can remember all these other details except for that. Alec was also questioned about how he didn't hear any gunshots when he was back in the house because he had not left the house by the time Paul and Maggie had been killed. So how did you not hear any gunshots? How did you not see anybody pull up? He said that he claimed he heard someone pull up, but he assumed it was Maggie. Maggie wasn't there. She was at the dog kennels. The timeline of events that 
Alec gave, he would have missed the murderer by minutes. How did you just miss them like that and not see them at all? But he said that, oh, he dozed off, so he didn't hear anything. But there's no way you were in that deep of a sleep to where you couldn't have heard some gunshots. The prosecution just wasn't buying it at all. They definitely said that Alec wasn't credible in any way. And then Creighton Waters flat out asked Alec if he was a family annihilator. And Alec said no, very adamantly. Towards the end of the trial, the jury was allowed to visit the Moselle property to get a feel for the crime scene and really visualize how this could have happened and just how long it would have taken Alec to get back to the house, leave the property again, and still not have heard or seen anything. The trial lasted for 28 days and both sides rested. Everybody made pretty solid points in my opinion, I would say. I think the defense also made very solid points as well because SLED really didn't do the best job at securing the crime scene. On March 2nd, 2023, the jury of 12 found Alec Murdoch guilty for the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. And the jury only deliberated in less than three hours, which is not a good sign. If the jury doesn't deliberate for a long time, it usually means they have their answer already. And this trial lasted for four weeks and they deliberated in less than three hours. Safe to assume it was a guilty verdict and Alec was immediately taken into custody. Like I said, the defense, they made pretty good points as well, but ultimately the prosecution presented a very strong case and that circumstantial evidence, although it was circumstantial, was very, very strong. The following day on March 3rd, 2023, which was four years to the day that Mallory Beach's body was found after the boat crash, Alec was sentenced by Judge Clifton Newman to two consecutive life sentences. He is now serving these life sentences in the Kirkland Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. Alec decided to address the court after his sentencing, and I'm going to play some of that audio. Good morning, Your Honor. I'm innocent. I would never hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never hurt my son, Papa. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Judge Clifton Newman then goes on to give his remarks and he honestly he went in on alec and i'm going to play that for you as well uh you've practiced law before me and we've seen each other at various occasions throughout the years and it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you um gone go in the media from being a uh, a grieving father who lost a wife and a son to being the person indicted and convicted of killing them. But within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. Sure, they come and visit you. And every night. And they will continue to do so and reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes. Oh, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. Yeah, Clifton Newman was playing no games. He called him right out. He even goes on to say that, you know, he would see Alec at events. I mean, they were both in the law industry. So he would see him. He knew how respected the Murdoch's were. So for him to go from that to now having to preside over his 
murder case in the interest of his wife and his son. I'm sure that was very surreal for Judge Clifton Newman. And I also read that he actually lost his son just two months before the trial began to a heart attack. I can only imagine how many wounds this opened up for him that may not have even been closed. Hearing that a father killed his son when he probably would have given anything to have his back. My heart does go out to Judge Clifton Newman and his family for the loss that they had to endure for him losing his son through no fault of his own and now having to watch this man who had his son and took his life. So the trial has finally wrapped, it's over, but this is not the end for Alec Murdoch. He has a lot more to go. He's been charged with so many financial crimes. I honestly don't even know how many, but it's over 75. Not to mention, there's still the death investigations of Gloria Satterfield and Stephen Smith. So things are not over for the Murdoch family by any means. As I said in part one, Stephen's death is now being investigated as a homicide. So somebody will have to pay the price for that at some point. I still can't believe that such a revered family now just has such a disgraced legacy. I mean, this dynasty really did in fact crumble. Their legacy is completely tarnished. The Murdoch name will forever have a black mark on it now from being one of the most prominent names in Hampton to now being a name that people probably won't even mention, or if it is mentioned, it's looked at with disgust and disgrace. And the older Murdochs, I'm sure, were also pretty corrupt, but they just didn't get caught. I think Alec was just messy and he made one too many mistakes. I also think people in Hampton probably knew for a while how corrupt the Murdochs were, but it took so many crimes happening for them to finally, finally, be exposed. But with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up part two of A Dynasty Crumbles. We will be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you in the water soon.